us to hear your word through the power of your spirit as Dave comes to teach us. And Father, we thank you for the church, and we thank you that we can gather together as your body. And Lord, that you continue to watch over us, and you continue to provide for us in every way, both as a church and as individuals. And we pray today that you would uh, continue to reform and, and mold your church into what you desire it to be. And we pray now for Dave as he comes, that you would just allow him to speak boldly and your truth to our hearts. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. We also pray for the children as they're dismissed to their classes, that you would bless them and bless the teachers. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome, everyone. And uh, today is part two of a lesson I started uh, two weeks ago, Christ's Call to Reform the Church. This title comes from a book written by John MacArthur just a couple of years ago. And I I commend it to everyone to, to read it. It's a great book. When I spoke two weeks ago, I talked about Christ's call to reform the church, specifically uh, the reform that he talked about in the seven letters that he wrote to the churches in Revelation. We learned, though, historically, calling a church to repent can be dangerous. One example was the Great Ejection of 1662, when 2,000 Puritan pastors in England were kicked out of the church who were calling it to reform. The other example was the Reformation in 1517, which we celebrated just on October 31st, 503 years ago, when Martin Luther lit the fuse that started what we know as the Great Reformation. We learned that the material principle of the Reformation was sole fide, faith alone. And that the formal principle was sola scriptura, scripture alone. Then last but not least, we saw Christ's call to reform the church in those seven letters to the churches. He calls on the errant churches to repent or else. And in 1 Peter 4.17, we learn, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. God will start with his church before the final judgment on the rest of the world. So to start today's message, I would like to read from another letter from Revelations, the first church uh, that he wrote to Ephesus. So if you would stand And we'll read Revelations 2, 1 through 7. I'll read to you Revelations 2, 1 through 7. It's uh, on page 1028 of the Pew Bible. Revelations 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. 
If not, I will come and remove your lampstand and its plate from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your words, your pointed words, your straight words. But here you're pointing out primarily your love for the church and our love should we should have for you and that we cannot let that love go out. We need to keep stoking it and keep the flames going for your eternal love because of the eternal love that you had for us. We pray that we can keep that love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Christians frequently uh, talk about the need to reform the church today. But what would a truly biblical revival of the body of Christ look like? Not just a, a stirring of a local church in a local setting, but a, a global spiritual revival of the whole church. What would it mean to have a new reformation today? What would change And what needs to happen to trigger such a revival? To begin with, the church would have to pursue pursue obedience to the Lord's command. You shall be holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter 1, 16. God's people need to bring an end to the foolish flirtations with worldliness and get serious about dealing with with his sin in their midst. That's the kind of reformation that Lord calls for, one that emphasizes a committed love for Christ. The exclusion of worldly compromise, the consistent confrontation of sin, and a serious plea for sound theology and personal holiness. But the reformation the church desperately needs isn't the product of some new strategy or emphasis. Believers don't need someone to blaze a new working trail or cast an exciting new vision for the church to match the perspectives of the 21st century. The fact is, the church isn't facing unique problems that demand clever new solutions. Straight Satan's strategies have not changed. We are not ignorant of his designs, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 2.11. His assault on the church today is the same as it was in the first century church. If anything that has changed, it's the church's willingness to compromise with the world and accommodate false teaching. Rather than engaging in spiritual warfare against satanic lies and anti-Christian ideologies, too many churches have declared an unbiblical truth with the world, and stop fighting for God's truth altogether. Innovative church models and unorthodox evangelistic strategies won't solve the problems we're facing. New methods for the church that aren't bound on biblical wisdom or the pursuit of holiness are not the solution. They're how we got here in the first place. More of the same won't solve the problem. Rather, God's people need to recover 
and reaffirm the historical theological principles behind the life transformations that invite true reformation in the first place. All the issues that afflict and impair the church today could be dealt with by renewed emphasis on the very same five solas of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. You know, we study this so we know what true biblical Christianity is. And that way, if we understand what true biblical Christianity is, we will know falsehoods when we see it. And it's just like Steve has taught us in the past. How do you know something's counterfeit? You have to study the original first, and then you can recognize a counterfeit when you see it. So that's what we're kind of doing today. What is the real teaching of the Bible? And the five solas help outline that for us. So the first one, sola scriptura. The absolute trust in scripture alone as the ultimate and sufficient authority in the church. As I've mentioned, that's known as the formal principle of the Reformation. It was a necessary foundation for all the other Reformation doctrines, and it was the first and primary point of departure from the corrupting influence of the Catholic Church. Others before Martin Luther had complained about Rome's abuses and false doctrines, but the Reformation was born out of Luther's relentless appeals to the authority of Scripture. Historically, that is the pattern of revival. Every great movement of God in the world is launched by the recovery of Scripture. It was the cause of a great spiritual awakening among the people of Israel after their exile. In Nehemiah 8, Israel calls for the book of the law and reads it to the people, prompting repentance and a dramatic revival throughout Jerusalem. Israel's history was marked by patterns of rebellion and revival. Rebellion and revival. Rebellion and revival. We see it time and again. And their repentance was always a product of remembering and returning to God's word. The Reformation was a result of a similar renewed commitment to the singular authority of God's word in his church. And bound up in that recognition of the Bible's authority was an implicit affirmation also of its sufficiency. We'll talk more about that. The Bible is not only inspired authoritative, authoritative word of God, but it's also sufficient to meet the needs of God's people. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy three sixteen seventeen. Scripture is sufficient for the salvation of the elect and the sanctification of the redeemed. It edifies the saints and informs their hope of eternity. It abundantly supplies instruction, correction, encouragement, and assurance of God's people. Scripture speaks to its own authority and sufficiency in Revelation twenty-two, eighteen, and 19, sternly warning anyone who would presume to add or take away from the word of God. Revelation twenty-two, eighteen. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city, which is described in this book. As a singular, sufficient, and final authority over the church, God's word is not subject 
to subtraction, addition, or editorial revision. Imagine the impact that a renewed commitment to Scripture, authority, and sufficiency would have in the churches today. To begin with, it would strike a massive blow against the educated heretics who have believed the lies of critical academics. It would silence the men and women who presume to sit in judgment of God's word, dismissing it as nothing more than literature, fables, and allegories to be interpreted by a personal whim or social concerns. And it would bring an end to the church's interest in theological novelty and innovation and restore the emphasis on biblical fidelity, sound doctrine, and faithful exposition. An emphasis on sola scriptura would also stifle deceptions of the charlatans who base their ministries on supposed fresh revelation and personal impressions from the Lord. Superstitions about private messages from God have plagued the church in almost every generation of church history. Virtually every sub-Christian cult has been founded by someone claiming to have had direct, directly heard from God. And almost no idea has left more destruction in its wake. And then most of you know that I had a cousin that went to Jonestown. She got caught up in one of those subcults that was supposedly Christian. But belief is ongoing. Revelation has become a hallmark of the charismatic movement. And far reach of its influence has sown into the church an appetite for fresh words from God, creating a global epidemic of professing Christians who believe the Bible isn't enough. If you have watched the faith healers and prosperity preachers on television, you will notice a consistent trend in their teaching. Most of the men and women almost exclusively in the first, speak in the first person. They stop back and forth across the stage explaining how the Lord told me this, the Lord told me that, with their fresh words from heaven. That whole approach to teaching is anti-biblical, and it creates it has created a false Christianity based on personal intuition and subjective insight. This notion that God is still speaking to people through dreams, mental impressions, gut feelings, and audible voices is an implicit denial of the final authority and complete sufficiency of Scripture. And that trend is not isolated to those under the influence of the charismatic mover or mystical nonsense. The approach to spiritual formation that encourages Christians to listen for the voice of God inside their heads or anywhere else outside of Scripture undermines the authority, sufficiency, and God-breathed uniqueness of the written word. The essential aspect of a true spiritual maturity is learn by us not to go beyond what is written, Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 4, 6. Any practice that encourages believers to work inward for answers rather than to God and his word is nothing more than repackaged Eastern mysticism in the guise of the devotion to the Lord. In spite of the biblical language it invokes, it eagerly substitutes subjective impressions and personal feelings for biblical truth. I like what Justin Peters has said, who has spoken here at our church many times before. Want to hear God speak to you? Read your Bible. You want to hear God speak audibly? Read it out loud. Other professing believers take a more circuitous approach to under, 
undercutting the authority and sufficiency of God's word by attempting to blend the truth of Scripture with worldly wisdom. Throughout much of the 1980s and 90s, psychology has exerted a dominant force in the church. Pastors and church leaders abdicated their counseling duties, giving way to professionals with little, if any, biblical training. As John MacArthur stated, too many have bought the lie that a crucial realm of wisdom exists outside of Scripture and one's relationship to Jesus Christ. And some idea or technique from the extra-biblical realm holds the real key to helping people with their deep problems. That trend continues unabated. If you go to a church and the lead pastor has a degree in psychology, red flag. We see the same assault on the authority of Scripture in the debate over the Genesis account of creation. Rather than accept the clarity of the literal translation of Genesis 1, Many in the church perform all sorts, of, all sorts of interpretive gymnastics to accommodate the world's conclusions about the universe's origins. Under the weight of so-called science, which cannot explain the massive miracle of creation, they reject the clear and simple reading of the text in favor of theories rooted in skepticism and unbelief. And they make a shamble of the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, by declaring in its opening pages to be nothing more than a fable or literary device. If Genesis can't be trusted, why should any other part of the Bible receive our absolute truth, trust? It's staggering how many false doctrines and erroneous practices in the church today are the direct result of compromising the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. A renewed commitment to sola scriptura would silence those purporting to speak for God and those sitting in judgment of what he has said. It would sweep aside the dream journals and fictional tales masquerading as divine revelation. And it would guard the church from the influence of those determined to mix biblical truth with worldly error. A renewed commitment to the authority, sufficiency, and clarity of Scripture is a starting place to purge the church of many of its most pernicious impurities and provide significant protection from Satan's corrupting influence. Justification by faith alone, sola fide, is the heart of the gospel. To reject sola fide, whether consciously or unconsciously, introduces a requirement of works that negates salvation. Good works play no part in delivering the sinner from the penalty sin deserves. In the Apostle Paul's great treatise on the nature of justification, he explained that the sinner's only hope of salvation is found not in his own righteous deeds, but the righteousness that comes by faith alone. In Romans 4, 5 through 8, And to the one who does not work but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as, uh, as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Faith alone is the means by which Faith alone is the means by which anyone has ever been made right with God. Israel's sacrificial system in the Old Testament, had no capacity to serve, save sinners. 
Through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord and his people said in Isaiah 1.11, I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Faith has always been the basis of God's redemptive plan. Scripture is clear that Israel's patriarch, Abraham, was not saved by his piety, but, by, but because he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Genesis 15.6. The New Testament authors repeatedly quote the verses in defense of justification by faith alone, in Romans, in Galatians, and in James. Good works did not save Abraham, and they can't save anyone else. Moreover, Paul warned the Galatians, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed, Galatians 1.9. The gospel of works is the damnable heresy Paul was referring to. And just think about it. If you want to know if works is involved in any way, think of the thief on the cross. That day, hours later, that thief received his faith and went to heaven and went with Christ at the same time. They went together. I mean, the first person that Christ brings into heaven, a a sinner on a cross with him, he takes No works. He had no time to do works. His faith saved him. He recognized who Jesus was, that he was the Lord and Savior of anyone that puts their faith and trust in him. The Roman Catholic Church pays lip service to the importance of faith, but Rome's dogma is built on a system of work righteousness and meritorious rituals. They encourage you to follow the Pope on Twitter. In fact, the common thread shared by all false religions throughout history is the consistent focus on the justifying merit of human achievement. But if salvation is by grace, Paul explains, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Romans eleven six. Only biblical Christianity teaches that justification of the sinner is an exclusively divine accomplishment by faith alone. There's only two kinds of religions in the world, human achievement or divine accomplishment. And there's only one that teaches divine accomplishment. Fewer than half of all Protestants in America today believe that salvation comes, less than half believe that faith comes by faith alone. They have been bewitched by a variety of false gospels and false assumptions. That fading commitment to sola fide undergirds two of the errors corrupting the church today. Ecumenism and easy believism. For too long, professing believers have searched for spiritual common ground between evangelical church and proponents of corrupt gospels. The unthinking hope of jointly laboring together with Catholics, Mormons, or others for the sake of moral reform or political advantages ignores the fact that those religions do not teach the same gospel. Other partners with unbelievers for the sake of social justice or the preservation of Judeo-Christian values. Those who engage in them must be willing to call out those false and deceitful teachings of those with whom they are allied. To remain silent is to blur crucial doctrinal lines that define the true church from the false church. Muting the gospel or staying silent is a sin. God's people must face the pointed words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 16. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? 
Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? For what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. The obvious answer, none. For the sake of the clarity of the gospel we preach, believers must not muddy the doctrinal waters by forging alliance with false religions. Christians need to stop attempting to harmonize the true gospel with satanic lies. Rather than sifting for elements of truth in other religions, the church ought to boldly expose how the false gospel of works is ushering people into hell. The Galatians, in Galatians 5, Paul says that the one who compromises the gospel by tolerating those who add works to faith as necessary for salvation are severed from Christ and fallen away from grace, Galatians 5, 4. A renewed commitment to sola fide would affirm the uniqueness of the biblical gospel and protect the church from the corrupting influence of work, works righteousness. That diminishing commitment by justific- to justification by faith alone has likewise inflicted the trend to easy believism of the church. While Scripture is clear that good works do not contribute to our justification, righteous behavior is nonetheless the essential reality produced by salvation. In his epistle to the Ephesians, Paul declared, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We don't do good works to become Christians. We do good works because we are Christians. Salvation comes purely by faith, but the transformation immediately demonstrates itself in righteous attitudes and behavior. The false gospel of easy believism demands no such proof of the Spirit's transforming work. It effectively treats faith as a work, one that requires no further evidence of repentance or transformation. In the end, easy believism amounts to nothing more than a decisional regeneration, a lie every bit as deadly as works righteousness. John MacArthur again writes, Modern evangelism is preoccupied with Decisions, statistics, aisle-walking, gimmicks, prefabricated presentations, pitches, emotional manipulation, and even intimidation. Its message is a cacophony of easy believism and simplistic appeals. Unbelievers are told if they invite Jesus into their hearts, accept him as his personal savior, or believe the facts of the gospel, that is all there is to it. The aftermath is appalling failure as seen as the lives of millions who have professed faith in Christ with no consequent impact on their behavior. Who knows how many people are deluded into believing they are saved when they are not. Easy believism silences the cries of the conscience and encourages false assurance. Countless men and women today expect an attorney in heaven because they once prayed a prayer or made an emotional decision about Christ. Along with others who put their faith in their own pious works, they will one day hear the horrifying words from the Lord. Matthew 7, 23. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The book of James says unlikely, faith apart from works is dead. James 2, 26. 
James explains that the empty, dead faith of easy believism is no better than the, that of the demons who shudder at God's existence but are no less damned. According to James, such faith is useless. A, new, a, new, a renewed commitment to sola fide and biblical understanding of the true faith that justifies faith in the finished work of Christ alone, faith authenticated through evidence of a transformed life, would leave no room for the gospel of easy believism and false assurance it has scattered throughout the church. Before moving on to the next sola, I want to remind you of a quote from John Calvin, which I think is very profound. But, of course, the Bible is more profound. John Calvin said, Faith alone justifies, but that faith that justifies is never alone. Sola gratia. Grace alone. In anticipation of man's capacity to contort faith into the sinner's meritorious work, Scripture makes clear that justification is not only through faith alone, but by divine grace alone. Catholics point to their own rituals as the means of salvation, while other prideful people claim the credit for believing in God and triggering their own salvation. But the doctrine of sola gratia destroys all notions of salvation by any cause other than the glorious grace of God. Paul makes that point. We just read in Visions 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The biblical doctrine of grace alone corresponds to any to and is necessitated. I'm sorry. The biblical doctrine of grace alone corresponds to and is necessitated by man's inability and unwillingness. Sinners have earned and deserve only the wrath of God poured out against their constant and willful rebellion. All stand fully, fully and equally before the Lord. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. In Galatians 3.10, Paul writes, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Man's utter corruption prevents him from earning or achieving God's favor in any way. Our salvation depends on human will. Does, does not, does not, our salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Romans 9.16 God saves us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, Titus 3.5. In fact, it's because of our unworthiness that God's saving grace is so amazing. We were unworthy, and he still saved us. It's amazing grace. In spite of our wickedness and corruption, he graciously grants us faith, washes us in the blood of his Son, and cloaks us in the flawless righteousness of Christ. Paul writes, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 That's the heart of the heart of the gospel. 
God imputed our wicked lives of sin to Christ, who in his death on the cross had all our sins laid at him by his Father. So he paid in full the penalty that was due us. He now imputes infinitely perfect righteousness of Christ to the account of each believer, all solely as a function of his infinite grace. We can define mercy as not giving what is deserved. We deserve wrath, but he hasn't given it to us. Grace can be defined as giving what is not deserved. We don't deserve anything, but he grants us grace. He grants us salvation. But the grace is not the primary feature in the message of most evangelical messages that dominate most churches today. Rather than emphasizing the powerful grace of God that alone can overcome man's inability and depravity, modern attractional methods stress the value of cultural relevance and catering to the felt needs of unbelievers. The idea is to tailor the church appeal to unbelievers, leveraging their taste and interest to draw them into the fellowship of the church and eventually to faith in Christ. That so-called seeker sensitivity is a cynical approach to the evangelism that exposes its proponents to lack of confidence in the truth of the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, the strategy is born out of the conviction that it is not God's grace that compels the sinner, but the cleverness of the preacher's sales pitch. And it's the foolish pursuit of fleeting relevance. Churches will stop at nothing to attract their target audience. While there are some truly bizarre examples of churches going to extreme lengths to imitate and interest a particular subculture, the majority of churches employing these strategies fall into an increasingly familiar pattern. The worship leader turns into, a, into pop musicians. The preachers transform into comedians and motivational speakers. And worship produced by theological truth is replaced by emotional stimulation that bypasses the mind. Topics like sin, judgment, holiness, godliness, separation from the world, humility, sacrifice, purity, and the need for repentance won't be heard. The goal is to keep it positive, affirming, inoffensive, light, and fun so visitors will come back. Unfortunately, it becomes a man-centered message that invariably forces on something the sinner himself must do. It also buries the glory of Christ Jesus, often under a blanket of lights, smoke, and blurring sensual music. Furthermore, from a sheer pragmatic perspective, new model evangelistic strategies simply don't work. They may be effective in packing crowds into the church building, but do they truly draw people to Christ? On the contrary, with all their talk about self-esteem, self-worth, self-betterment, and other man-centered themes, seeker-sensitivity methods tend to shift the sinner's focus inward rather than to the Lord. True seekers, people genuinely seeking God in their own initiative, don't even exist. In Romans 3.11, Paul declares unequivocally, no one seeks for God. Sinners cannot be wooed to the truth by clever marketing and high production value. Christ himself said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6.44, 
Only through God's gracious gift of faith can anyone be redeemed. God's ability to pursue and draw sinners is, contingent on the, is not contingent on the cleverness of the speaker or the talent of the musicians. And it isn't unleashed when the church shamelessly apes the worldly trends of pop culture. Nothing Christians do to adjust or embellish the gospel of Jesus Christ could ever make the message more compelling or the grace of God more potent. A firm commitment to sola gratiae, grace alone, would shift the focus of the church away from how it markets itself to the world and onto the only means of true faith and repentance, the power of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. Soli de gloria. Glory to Christ alone. I mean, glory to God alone. There is no exaggeration in Paul's instructions to the church to glorify the Lord in even life's most mundane activities. He writes, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31. That's something I need to work on. Glorifying God should be our primary goal and our chief motivation. His glory alone ought to be the inspiring intent behind every action, thought, and word. But have you noticed how little you hear about God's glory lately? Listening to the leading voices in the churches, you get the idea that God is more interested in your happiness, fulfillment, and satisfaction than his own glory. The God featured in many sermons today is little more than a genie, eager to fix your problems and make your dreams come true. There's no sense of a higher purpose of life than man's own satisfaction and pleasure with the Lord's depicted as the chief enabler. One of Satan's favorite and most effective strategies is to disguise self-love with a moral but cheap smokescreen. Clearly, the deception is working. Many churches are offering not what God seeks, but what is natural to the depraved sinner, his own fulfilled desires. When preachers offer health, wealth, fulfillment, or satisfaction, the sinner is made sovereign. His will must be done or he won't join. As a result, rampaging pride and selfishness have infected the church at every level. In the pews, men and women expect God to give them what they desire, fulfilling all their fantasies as he pours out endless blessings and favor. Because he loves them so unconditionally, and is so happy they finally like him. Pastors and churches' leaders compound the problem by living opulent lifestyles that they excuse as proof of God's hearty approval of their ministries. One pastor who told his church, I need a $54 million private jet. And the reason he said he needed that jet, because you can't talk to God while you're flying commercial. Worse still is the spiritually bankrupt and biblically deficient message from the pulpit that actually incites materialism, covetousness, greed, human pride, earthly affections, and a host of other carnal inclinations are set against the glory of God. It should stun such deceivers that God said, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. Isaiah 42, 8. This insidious trend is not isolated to the false prophets of the prosperity gospel. Today's pastors from all denominations and theological persuasions invent an idol who is interested in solving problems and satisfying carnal desires rather than in what the true God is doing by building Christ's church and sanctifying his people. 
That becomes significant hindrance to the salvation and spiritual growth and thus hinders the true work of God's kingdom. The church cannot be a light to the world if it is consumed with self-loving greed. Christians have nothing to offer unbelievers when they succumb to the same kind of sinful self-interest and self-preoccupation. God's people need to get their eyes off themselves and onto him. They need to consider the magnitude of his holiness, the fullness of his attributes, and the graciousness of the love he pours out in spite of our repeated failures. They need to echo the words of Paul in Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Glory's God is the dominating reality in the life of every believer. Christians need to get in the habit of asking, how will this decision, how will this action, this conversation, along with everything else I do today, bring glory and honor to the Lord? Submitting everything you do to that test will guard you from the temptation to fixate on your own self-interest. You won't have time to indulge selfish desires if you are submitting every aspect of your life to the praise and honor of the Lord. The glory of God is the overarching purpose behind everything God does. Moreover, it's the purpose behind our lives and the life of every believer. God's people aren't interested in their own achievements. They understand that it is God who accomplishes his will through them and in him and him alone who deserves the glory, honor, and praise. Most lift, list the five solas with glory to God alone as the last one. That's fitting because clear emphasis on God's glory is foundational to all other pillars of the Reformation theology. But I wanted to end it with eyes fixed on Christ in his church. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Salvation is available in Christ alone. That is not a popular truth today. In a world where postmodernism, relativism has run amok, no one wants to hear about the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even some call themselves... Even some who call themselves Protestant and evangelicals find the message off-putting and controversial. Many in the church refuse to let the gospel offend sinners. They think you can't tell people they're wrong about the gospel. You can't tell them they're going to hell. Instead, they want God's word to be accommodating to err and open to broad and wildly valid, varied interpretations. They want to find room in the plan of redemption to sneak in earnest followers of the faith, of other faiths. They can't abide by the narrow gate, and they go about convincing others that the path to heaven isn't as strict and as rigid as it sounds. In this age of tolerance, no one wants to hear that salvation is found only in the person and the works of Jesus Christ. Such exclusive claims contradict a world without absolutes, a world dominated by the infantile notion that I should be entitled to determine my own truth. But if the truth can't hold fast to the truth about Christ, that there is only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2, 5, 
and that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12, then there is no light to bring to this sin-blinded world. If you have not explained that faith in Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, you have not preached the gospel. The church must contend against the intellectual arrogance and religious diversity of the rebellious world by faithfully upholding the most unpopular of all biblical truths about the Lord. Namely, he is as he stated, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. Moreover, the church must be devoted to Christ. The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 1 Peter 1, 7 through 9. God's people must not forsake their first love. As we saw in the Lord's letter to the churches, that's how the the precipitous and deadly slide of the Ephesus church began. Put simply, there is no greater defense against spiritual lethargy, compromise, corruption, and apostasy than faithfully stoking the flames of our love for Christ. That's why preaching Christ isn't a preference, it's a necessity. Pastors who don't preach Christ are failing the goats and starving the sheep. It's crucial for God's people to know the full revelation about Christ if they're going to truly love him. And that love is vital to the life of the church and its usefulness to the work of God's kingdom. With that in mind, some time ago, John R. MacArthur penned a short statement about the rich depths of loving Christ as he revealed in Scripture. It's there in your notes at the end, and I'd like to read that to you. And you can follow along if you like there in the notes. We love Christ. We love Christ who is the eternal Son, one in nature with the eternal Father and the eternal Spirit, the triune God. We love Christ who is the creator and life giver as well as sustainer of the universe and all who live in it. We love Christ, who is the virgin-born Son of God and Son of Man, fully divine and fully human. We love Christ, who is the one whose life on earth perfectly pleases God, please God, and whose righteousness is given to all who by grace through faith become one with him. We love Christ, who is the only acceptable sacrifice for sin that pleases God, and whose death under divine judgment paid in full the penalty for the sins of his people, providing for them forgiveness and eternal life. We love Christ who is alive, having been raised from the dead by the Father, validating his work of atonement and providing resurrection for the sanctification and glorification of the elect to bring them safely into his heavenly presence. We love Christ who is at the Father's throne, interceding for all believers. We love Christ who is God's chosen prophet, priest, and king, proclaiming the truth, meditating for, mediating for his church, and reigning over his kingdom forever. We love Christ, who called certainly 
who will certainly and suddenly return from heaven to rapture his church, unleash judgment on the wicked, bring promised salvation to the Jews and the nations, and establish his millennial reign on earth. We love Christ, who will, after that earthly reign, destroy the universe, finally judge all sinners, send them to hell, then create a new heavens and a new earth where he will dwell forever with his saints in glory, joy, and love. This is the Christ we love. This is the Christ we preach. And we love him because he first loved us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, if there's any hope for a new Reformation and revival today, it is a church that will submit to, you, to the authority and sufficiency of your scripture, that will faithfully proclaim the message of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, that God's people will devote themselves to glorifying him in all things, and that hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ in loving devotion to their Savior. I pray that we all remain in steadfast love and never forget our first love, Christ who first loved us. Otherwise, we would have never loved him. Let that love reign eternal. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.